0: Uh, We're also going to pray for the H3 guys. Um, They have their preaching retreat this weekend. They're up at the Dave Bowers cabin in Payson. And uh, it's a first time preaching for a lot of those guys. They get to preach for 20 minutes in front of their friends who love them. But a lot of them are anxious and a little bit nervous about it. So we're going to pray for them. And we're going to pray for ourselves. So let's do that. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together here As brothers in Christ, thank you so much for enabling us to even get here this morning. Lord, we are here only because of your kindness and your grace to us and your mercy to save us and draw us into a relationship with you. I praise you for that. I praise you for your aim in that to glorify yourself and to rescue us from ourselves. I pray that our time together would be encouraging. Lord, as we finish out the year, I pray that you would give us good exchange and good dialogue. Lord God, that we would uh, help one another see what the benefits are of BUILD and where we can improve BUILD in our discussion. I pray that you would help us there. I pray that you would help us as we listen to Scott talk about the right way to study your word and to look at your word and to read your word. I pray that you would grow us, Lord, in ways that are, are helpful to our relationship with you. We also pray for the guys in BUILD and the guys in H3. We thank you so much for each one of them. Lord, they met every week for a whole year. And you watched over them and cared for them, and they've learned so much. And, Lord, they have the opportunity to to preach a message to their friends who love them and are praying for them. And yet, Lord, they're anxious. I pray for each one of them, Lord, that their confidence would be in you, that they would love your word, and they would speak truth from your word, and they would be eager to share with their friends what you have shared with them if they've spent time in your word. So we pray that you would be glorified in that. We pray that you would be glorified here. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks for moving forward. When I was young, I attended a Baptist church, and I was a back row Baptist. I really enjoyed sitting in the back row, but it's good to have guys right in front of you. Praise God for that. We have been talking about... Um, shepherding our heart through the six disciplines all year long. We've we've met now 16 times, and every time we talk about how you shepherd your heart. So, if you have your notebook, would you just take it out and turn to the back? I'm going to get mine. Just look at the back sheet here and remind ourselves what these disciplines are. What I wanted to do this morning is to share with you some of what I do when I shepherd my own heart. Um, the emphasis in all of these disciplines starts with discipline one, your heart. So I thought I would spend some time just sharing with you guys how it is that I shepherd my own heart. And I don't intend in any way for this to be a tutorial. I'm very hopeful and very confident in the kind of ways that you guys shepherd your own hearts. But if there's anything I share this morning that's helpful to you guys as it relates to my time in the Word or my time in prayer... I'm I just hope that that blesses you guys and that helps you guys. So what I thought I would do is is share with you uh, some of what I do in my time alone with the Lord in the morning. I meet with the Lord in the morning. I try and make a habit of meeting with him in the morning because it sets my thinking for the day. It helps me to think rightly on my drive to work. It helps me to think rightly when I get to work and when I drive home from work and when I enter into life with my family. In my case, I I leave home before anybody else gets up in my house. And so um, the first place I bring my heart shepherding is into the workplace. So when I meet alone with the Lord, um, it's very helpful for me to remember who it is that I'm talking to. And we all know who God is. We all know that he's revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. But it's very helpful for me, especially in these last couple of years in my life, as um, things have not always been very certain at work and in other places as well, for me to remember that God is the creator God. And he is unique and he's different from every other thing in that he is not created. He is the creator, not the created. And as I think through that, it really helps me to remember that everything that is taking place is designed by him and it's controlled by him, it's permitted by him, and that there's nothing that's a challenge to him, there's nothing that's an obstacle to him, there's nothing that is contesting with him. It helps me to remember that as I begin praying. And so when I come before the Lord, um, the first thing I try to do in these last couple of years is to remember who he is, who it is that I'm actually meeting with, Um, that before he spoke light into existence and before he created an expanse that separated the waters above from the waters below and before he gathered those waters below into one place and called them sea and before dry land was formed and before vegetation was put on the dry land and before there were creatures in the water and creatures in the air and creatures on the land um, and before he made man in his own image he knew everything about me he knew everything that i would do before he created anything it's helpful for me to remember that He knew everything that I would do um, from the first day that I was born. He knew every one of my thoughts. He knew every one of my words. Uh, He knew every one of my deeds that was an offense against him. And he had measured all of my deeds, and he knew them. And uh, he knew the extent to which those deeds were offensive to him. Um, And still he chose me before any of them were, were ever done, before there was any context in which I would do any of those things. He chose me to be holy and blameless before him. And it's very helpful for me to remember his design and his intentionality in pursuing me. And so it's just helpful for me to remember that. And as I do that, I, I'm reminded of, of who it was that I, I descended from. I descended from Adam and I descended from Noah, just like everybody else in this room. And I descended from fallen people. And as, I, as far as I can see back into my own family lineage, I, I know that I was born from sinful people. I, I've met them. I know them. I've lived with them. And uh, it's helpful for me to remember that I was born in that condition. And so um, the offense that my my actions and my thoughts and my words brought about in Christ, brought about to him, um, was an offense that the Father had a wrath for that that was larger than I could absorb. Because of his infinite holiness and his infinite kindness and goodness and his grace, um, he determined that he wanted a relationship with me. He wanted a relationship with me that would would um, last forever. But it was one that was not possible because as a created being, I was not capable of of propitiating all of God's wrath against me, of satisfying all of it. It would take me an eternity because I'm a created being to satisfy all of his anger against me. And that's what hell is. And I remind myself daily that that's what I deserve. And I look back in my life when I was a younger man. I look back at my life before I came to Christ. I look back at my life when I was a young child, and I see all of the things that were so offensive. It's very helpful for me to remember what it is that God did to remedy that problem. Um, Because I was not capable of satisfying all of his anger against me, he he did the only thing that he could do, and that is that he sent his son into this world. Um, His son was the the only other thing that is not created um, that could satisfy all his anger against me and so he was fully god because he was conceived by the holy ghost and he was fully man because he was born of a woman and he lived a perfect life and it's very helpful for me to remember and just remind myself of how difficult it would be for any person to live the life that christ lived how impossible it would be that he was tempted in ways that are much more than i'm tempted he was tempted face to face by satan himself uh, for 40 days in the desert he was led there by the spirit to be tempted and and he succeeded and he satisfied every demand of, of the, the law in that. And, and when he went to the cross, he was fully righteous. And it's really helpful for me to remember that my Savior lived a life that was perfect so that he could go to a cross as an innocent sacrifice. It's very helpful for me to remember that when he was on the cross, he maintained his own personal innocence, even though all of my guilt was on him. And um, when he was on that cross, he was being reviled by wicked Jews in front of him, and they were mocking him and They were stating that there was no way he could be God because he wasn't taking himself down from the cross. And uh, he did not revile in return. And when he was suffering, he he didn't utter any threats to them. Instead, he just entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. And it's very helpful for me to remember that the one who judges righteously did indeed pour out all of his anger against me on the Son. And I remind myself almost daily that Jesus... Um, knew that everything had been accomplished, and after everything had been accomplished, he said he was thirsty. Um, So he knew on the cross that he had fully satisfied the Father's wrath against me, and I find great joy and great comfort in that. And I walk myself through um, the fact that after he had done that, he willingly submitted himself to death. He yielded his own spirit so that he could be raised again from the dead and that I could walk in newness of life because of that. So it's very helpful for me to remember those things. That that sets my mind. It takes me a few minutes to go through that. But that sets my mind as I begin to pray about my own life and I begin to confess my sin. It gives me the proper context and the proper framework in which I'm confessing those things. Um, It helps me understand what I'm doing when I'm confessing my sin. I'm confessing sin that Christ has already died for. And there's a joy in that while there's a sobriety in it at the same time. And in that, there's just plenty of opportunity to praise the Lord for his kindness and his mercy. As I I reflect on my life that week and that day, the previous day, and what I've said and what I've done and how I've misrepresented the gospel in my own life and in my own home and at work and every other place, Um, it's just a great opportunity to to confess that before the Lord and to remind myself that Christ has already died for that. And then I pray for my wife. I pray for my kids, um, remembering that he's done the same thing for them that he's done for me. I praise God and I thank God for that. It's very, very helpful for me to do that. Um, All of that is is the heart shepherding that that I need, um, and that's what I do to to help myself prepare for reading the Word. I usually pray like that before I read the Word um, because it just reminds me of who it is that I'm spending time with and and what it is that I'm reading. When I understand the God who created the world, uh, that's the very same God who who edited and who authored the Scripture that I'm about to read. So that helps me, and it sobers me, and it just reminds me of, of who it is that I'm speaking with. And it it helps me read from the gospels. It helps me read from the letters in the new Testament and it helps me read from the old Testament. So just in summary, it's, it's really helpful for me to remember uh, who God is when I'm praying. It's very helpful for me to remember who Christ is. It's very helpful for me to remember uh, what he actually did to make me alive. And that he, he used his Holy spirit to pour into me affections that were not a part of me before they were they were affections that came from god and those are the things that have given me the the desires to know him and to love him and to please him and to love those around me as well so those are some of the ways in which i shepherd my heart in the mornings Um, i try to maintain that throughout the day Um, just like everybody else i live here in a mixed condition and so that's an ongoing work in progress Um, but if any of that is helpful to you I, i just praise god for that so That's what I do to shepherd my own heart. Um, I take that into the workplace. Uh, When I'm done with work, I take that into my home. Um, And I find that to be very, very helpful, uh, remembering those things as I'm interacting with my wife and interacting with my kids. It really does help my conversations with my wife. It really does help my conversations with my kids. I can tell you from my own life this week that when... I don't have a good time in the, in the word, and then I find myself in a conversation with my wife. She's almost leading the conversation. She's the one uh, almost driving the conversation as far as the spiritual content of it. And um, I know exactly why, and I know it's because the word of Christ is not richly dwelling in me that day. Um, so I can't um, teach and admonish and encourage her and, uh, with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. It just doesn't come forth from me if it's not already in me that day. So um, my wife benefits from that. My kids do as well. Um, I had a chance to celebrate with my kids this week. They, they graduated from ASU, so it was great. And um, I went through most of those days. My parents were here for three or four days, and I went through most of those days having spent time in the Word and and having um, enjoyed the Lord first, and it made those days very good. And the one day that I, I did not spend good time in the Word, I, I was rushed, and I was a little hurried. There was just a lot to do, and and it seems like many times throughout that day, my words to my parents, my words to my in-laws, my words to my own kids that I, that I love and I'm celebrating with, just were not representative of, of what God has done in me, and, and we're not helpful in leading them. Um, so the testimony before you in my own life is that um, I benefit and we all benefit from uh, investing time, caring for our own hearts, and reading the Word. So that's it. Scott, thank you so much.
1: Did you guys notice—the um, way that he talks about um, his time in the Word—is he's meeting with the Lord. See, so that—that's a great way to be thinking about. That's—that's that's the goal. Um, it doesn't matter what you call whatever it is that you're doing, but that's—that's the, that's the aim: is you're meeting with someone uh, who is God. And um, the uh, as I was listening to Scott explain that. By the way, did you notice that the first part that he walked through from creation through Christ to, to his life, um, I, was, I was watching the clock. That took about five minutes or so, maybe a little longer, could be a little less. Um, can you imagine? I mean, that wasn't real long, but he just rehearsed to his own heart and his own mind in that. And he does that every morning that he, he meets with the Lord. That truth. Uh, he didn't start with how he felt. He started with truth. Um, if you can imagine a like a, a ball bearing in a in a groove that was perfectly shaped, the ball bearing was shaped perfectly for that groove, and you put that in there, and, and it's on a an incline, and and you let go of that ball bearing, that ball bearing just fits that groove perfectly, and it just rolls perfectly. See, that's in in Christ with your new condition. You've been shaped by truth, God's truth, and you just are inclined to follow that. You need to have your heart there. But imagine that you're constantly in an environment where you're, you're going to oxidize. You're going to, there's going to get rust. There's going to be calcification all over you. There's going to be ice crystals that form on you. You're going to be cold And you put that ball bearing with all these chunks on it in that little groove, and it does nothing. And so what you have to do every morning... I I like what John Piper said. Um, He said, I feel like every morning I have to get saved again. That's not because he's lost his salvation. It's why. Why does he feel that way? Because sin makes you cold towards God. It makes you resistant to, sin doesn 't do anything else sin doesn 't sit there and go okay i 'll go along with righteousness today. Sin says no, every opportunity it 's going to thwart what God has done in you and how you think and so when even after sleeping you haven't even been consciously awake, purposefully sinning, you wake up and you 're cold towards God. do you ever find that you ever wake up and find yourself going I I get to meet with the Lord. This is going to be great. Get out of bed. Do you you ever feel that way? Or do you ever feel like, man, 10 more minutes. Just 10 more. And 10 becomes 20. And 20 becomes 30. The next thing you know, you just barely have enough time to get in the shower and get out the door. Why is that? Because of indwelling sin still in you. So when you get up in the morning, you need some kind of truth exercise, like what Scott talked about, that lets you kind of start breaking off the chunks, the calcified ice crystal sin, that lets you start fitting into the groove of truth better so that you will be more aligned with truth, so that you will roll in truth the way that you were recreated to do in Christ. Now, whether you walk yourself through something like what Scott rehearses, which is kind of a a sweep of scripture, of scriptural truth, or whether your time in the Word begins with a passage that just does that, you should do something that war- begins to warm you up and smooth you out to prepare you to. Think about this. Th- those of you guys who are younger, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But the older you get, the more you need to warm up before you do anything that requires exertion. And you should do that even when you're young. It's just that your body doesn't know that it's hurting itself when you're doing that. But, but, the, but you need time to warm up and then whatever it is that you're doing, if you're working out or if you're playing ball or if you're running or whatever, then it, it, uh, it's all the more, it's, it's easier. It's better. It has a, a better effect. The same thing happens in this. All Scott is doing when he's doing that is he's warming himself up to speak of it in another way. You need some time where... Um, you're going to actually warm yourself up. You're going to be like, Oh yeah, I need to be aligned with God in my thinking today. And so you should have some time of your reading where, or praying, praying through something like what Scott talked about that actually begins to align you. And once you find yourself in alignment, you'll find that whatever reading you do then becomes more effective, more meaningful, um, so, ex- don't just sit there in the morning, open up your Bible, and expect that, boom, you're firing on all cylinders, you're ready to go, because you're going fi- to, you ever find this, that you're reading, and you're just like, what am I doing here? My heart and my mind is someplace else, well, you know what, um, take the time to get yourself warmed up to this truth, that the sin inside you, that's still indwelling you, hates, you've got to fight for it. Um, some days that goes better than others. Some days you'll wake up and you, you'll find yourself in alignment much quicker with truth than other days. Some days you'll, you'll feel like all you did was just fight to be okay with the idea of being in God's word. And you're not sure you ever got there. There's going to be some days like that in your life. It's, it's sad to say, but it's true. But you need time. And so you should... Um, you probably need more time than you think you do to get warmed up, but take that time in the morning too, or in the evening throughout the day to just keep bringing yourself back to the word of God so that you can align yourself with the God of the word. Right? Does that make sense? And again, if you are done with build now and nothing changes in your life or whatever you've been trying to practice doesn't continue, we failed. Um, The whole thing that we're trying to do here over about nine months and about 16 or 17 meetings or so is to just get new disciplines going in your life or reinforce the old disciplines that have been there, uh, just strengthen them. So keep pressing on, all right? All right, so what I want to do today, if we can, um, is... We're probably just going to all stay together. we got several of our guys who are gone, um, who are part of H3 as well, and our small group leaders. So what we'll do is we'll kind of jump into our study, and then we'll spend the last bit of time talking together. Uh, I'd like to get some feedback from you about BUILD. Uh, your homework on the yellow sheet from last time is actually an evaluation, so if you even have your evaluation, you can grab that. Um, so why don't we do that? Let's um, take out your... That's the context. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk goes on this rant, kind of on, in chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand on my guard post, and I'll station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me, and how I may reply when I am reproved. He knows he needs to be corrected. There's something wrong going on in his head. But I tell you what, that context has far more application to us than the other way. That God's just too pure to look upon you. Now, is that true theologically? Yes. But that's not what that passage is teaching. You tell me, what's profitable for teaching reproof correction and training in righteousness? That you would watch another believer stumped completely confounded under the calamity that is coming upon them that's helpful because guess what's going to happen to you and me in life we're going to be in the same place and we can actually watch another believer going through this you know what I'm saying Um, and there's other passages like this 2nd Chronicles 16.9 what we looked at earlier the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the world to look for those whose hearts are fully his And you have been foolish is the rest of the verse because he's talking to King Asa who before trusted God when the Ethiopians came out to him with a million man army and he relied solely on the Lord and God just wiped out the whole problem took it away and now another king has come a smaller army and now he's going off to pay other kings to help him out and he says. Yeah, just read things in context, okay? And here's the point, here's the point I want to have you make sure you understand. What on earth in hermeneutics makes it a discipline? Here's what it is. If you're going to apply rules of interpretation to the scripture, you have to have so much self-control, it's not even funny. Because what you're going to want to do at every point along the way is take what's inside you and how the text strikes you at the moment and you're going to want to take your thoughts and impose them on the text. And what do you have to do? This is a spiritual discipline. Stop that. I will not do that. I will let these words speak their meaning to me. Regardless of what I think about it. You have to control yourself Guys, listen, control yourself to want the original author's meaning more than a quick, meaningful truth for whatever situation you're going through. Oh, I'm having a really hard day. I've got to find something. What is, what's going to help me? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's the one I'm going to take from Ezekiel 47. Want the truth of the original author's meaning more than you want your own just personal comfort. Okay, that takes self-control. You have to be a certain kind of man to be able to do that. Let not many of you become teachers, James says, chapter 3, verse 1. You'll incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because it's so easy to take what's inside you and just spill it out on this and call it the word of God. When it may not be. Watch yourself when you want to explain one passage by turning to another. Um... This kind of gets at where Danny's talking about. the context determines the meaning. Here, here's one thing you should watch when somebody says, "Hey, what does this verse mean?" Uh, in John 8, and you go, oh I'll, let me show you. Uh, turn over to Second Corinthians chapter seven, or whatever. Well, wait a minute. So you want me to leave the, the, the context and the conversation that's going on in John 8, and you want you want to leave that. I just want to understand. You want me to leave that context, which determines that meaning, and you want me to go to a different context. I know it's God's word. We, we were in God's word. We're going to end up in God's word. But you want to have that conversation tell me what the other conversation means. Um, you have to be careful with that. There are some times when you do need to turn to other passages to help you understand Another one, but you shouldn't do that first. Stay as long as you can in one conversation, in one paragraph, in one context. Stay there as long as you can. And then later, see what other passages say. Okay? Number seven, progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. God revealed his truth over an extended period of time. In other words, revelation became more detailed as time went on, it progressed. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. Um, Let me give you a, a natural world example. A natural world has a category for this. If you saw me in my backyard setting down one cinder block, position the cinder block, and you said to me, what's that? And I said to you, it's a wall. Um, you say, well, no, no, it's not. It's a, it's a block. Well, yeah, it's a block, but I'm, I'm building a wall. That's, that's a wall right here. Um, you have to, nobody ever installs a wall by bringing a big old crane in and the whole wall is assembled and it comes down. Right? You start with a block and you set it down. Now, to do that, to build a wall, uh, legitimately, you can take a block that is not a wall and put it down, right? See, this is so intuitive, you understand this. You're like, what on earth is he after? You can set a block down that's not a wall and it will be a wall because then you take another block that's not a wall and you set it down and it starts to become a wall, right? Um, When, for instance, in Genesis chapter 3, verse fifteen I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel that verse right there is called the proto evangelium it's called the beginning and the, the the gospel is running from that verse on but guess what here's what it doesn't say uh, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed who is a son of David who will be Messiah, who himself will be the the substitutionary sacrifice, bearing the penalty for all of those who will believe, he will be crucified, he will be raised from the dead, he will ascend on high, and he will come back and set up his kingdom. It doesn't say all of that there, right? Why? Because what did God do in verse 15? He set down what? A brick. And then you read a few more pages. And he sets down another brick. And then he goes a few more pages and he sets down another brick. And you start putting bricks together. And the next thing you know, when it's all said and done and you've read your whole Bible and you see it, what do you see? What a massive wall of redemption God made. Isn't it glorious? But guess what? You don't walk back to verse 15 and say, that's all of Jesus. Everything there. I know everything about Jesus. Jesus is in that passage. Is Jesus in that passage? If you say yes, tell me in what sense? In what sense is Jesus in Genesis 3:15? That there's a piece coming, or there's a piece that's been placed that needs a lot more other pieces to be able to figure it out. But if you teach Jesus from that passage and you never turn to any other passages or never lay any other bricks out for people, You're going to be saying something more. Listen, you should say no more than Genesis 3.15 says. And you should say no less than Genesis 3.15 says. And you should be able to try to assemble all of it for them at some point in a message to be able to say what this is about. In other words, progressive revelation. Let's go back to his notes here. The fact that God's revelation has grown more detailed over time means that we avoid the trap of reading later revelation back into earlier revelation. There's a whole branch of um, evangelicals who their, their, their phrase of interpreting the, their, the way of describing interpretation of the old Testament is we interpret the old Testament through the lens of the new Testament. So what that means is we take the later truths that have been revealed in the new Testament and we interpret the prior, earlier truths of the Old Testament through the lens of those later New Testament realities. And so when we read Genesis 3.15, it's Jesus. Well, in what sense? I I can maybe agree, depending on what you mean by that, right? Um, But Jesus is not in every Old Testament text. Just because you know that the whole thing ends up with Jesus at the end doesn't mean that the only way for him to be in the Old Testament text is that he has to be in the Old Testament text. That would be the equivalent of saying the only way you can build a wall is if it's made up by a whole bunch of little walls. That block is not a block anymore. It's a wall. It is a wall. That's a wall. And I put another wall together. And that's the only way that the whole thing can be a wall is that every piece has to be a wall. Nobody does that. And it doesn't have to be that way in scripture either, in terms of progressive revelation. Uh, Yeah. Look, when you're in Genesis uh, 3.15, the last thing you want to say is, that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Because it does. But for it to have something to do with Jesus Christ does not require Jesus Christ to be in that passage. When when uh, Noah is born prior to, or uh, after this, when Noah is born, his dad says, his name shall be Noah, for perhaps we will find rest from all of the toils and the labors. He, Noah's dad has been experiencing the curse on the land, and he, he names his son Noah with the hopes that perhaps there's rest for us in this one. Maybe this is the one. I mean, you take that, And you add that on to what's going on, and there's an anticipation in the early race of man saying, somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. And you have to assemble those together. But if you know that the end answer is Jesus, you don't read Jesus back into everything to make it work. You don't have to. Let each thing say what it says, and when you assemble it all together, you get this massive, amazing truth about Jesus Christ. That's part of it. It? Yeah, exactly. And he gives an example about Genesis 12 and Abraham. When, when God gave the promise to, Gen, uh, to Abraham in Genesis 12, did Abraham understand everything that came and was revealed later from that? No, he didn't. Don't approach Genesis 12 like he, what? Did understand all of it. Let it teach him according to what it is. And if you want to add more in your message... Feel free to do that. Um, Rick Holland always said to us when we were learning how to preach, he said, Jesus is not in every text, but he should be in every sermon or in every lesson. Do you understand? That you want to be so Christ-centered that you want Christ to come out all the time? A wrong way to go about that would be to think, I've got to find him in this text when he may not be there. Especially in the Old Testament, right? But in your sermon or your lesson, he should be. Um, To show you just the opposite of how backwards it is that you should not interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, go to Luke chapter 1. I want to show you this. Luke chapter 1. come to the New Testament and the New Testament says in verse 5 that there is a priest and he had a wife and so what does priest mean huh okay oh I know I'm, I, yeah I grew up Catholic. Oh yeah okay priest I got it. So there's a priest like that. I grew up Catholic and it's a priest like that um, and he's a wife of the daughters of Aaron who's Aaron? I don't know who Aaron is. Verse 6, and there are commandments. Commandments. Which commandments were given? Uh, Verse 9, there's a a temple. Oh, I saw that. Uh, There's a temple in L.A., uh, not far from MacArthur's church. It's that Buddhist temple. Uh, What temple is this? Verse 11, there are angels. Oh, I used to watch that show on TV. Uh, Verse 16, sons of Israel. Who's Israel. Uh, verse 17, there's Elijah. mentioned. I don't know. Josh Kelso has a kid named Elijah. Um, you, you know what this is? Here's the first page of a New Testament gospel. And what does it presuppose that you need to know? This ranges from Exodus all the way through David and Solomon to 1 Kings 17, all the way to King Ahab, because at some point you get down here to Elijah the prophet, who was... Ex- prophesying under the reign of King Ahab it assumes an awareness and an understanding of what? The old. So if you want to understand the New Testament you need to understand it through the lens of the Old Testament. It's just the opposite. You don't read later revelation back into old revelation or older revelation. You interpret the idea of new revelation through the lens of everything that God had already revealed. Yeah. 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 What's funny about that? It's it's sad, but it's there. There's nothing winsome about it. Look, if you don't like what the Old Testament, New Testament says, just add more revelation. That's at least what they did. Without getting rid of the Old Testament, I mean, just come up with your own book. If you don't like what it says, just come up with your own book. There's more integrity in that, I think, than. Even though it's damning. Um, Number eight, interpretation versus application. There's a difference, and we talked about this. Interpretation finds the meaning. Interpretation and meaning go together, those two things are synonymous. Interpretation finds the meaning of the original author intended in his historical situation. The application is the various ways that one meaning can be lived out today. For example, Jesus said, Love one another. That's what he said. A wife might say, now watch this. This is where you have to be. Uh, Now, Joel is going to be sloppy with his words on on purpose. A wife might say, that means I need to love my husband better. But is that really the meaning? What word should she use instead of meaning? That applies to me that I should love my husband. If it is her husband, it's going to have some trouble... um, If it is, her husband's going to have some trouble fulfilling that command. Because he'd have to love himself. Because if it means that she loves her husband, how does he love, anyway? Um, And if that is the meaning, the wife might get upset when other women in the church try to love her husband better, too. Okay? Do you understand? You can see the point. The meaning of John 15:12 is a command for the disciples to exhibit a self-sacrificial concern for others. You might be able to stretch that to apply to how a wife is to relate to her husband. However, that application is definitely not the meaning of the passage. So part of the problem today is there is such an unawareness between what meaning means and what application means that we just interchange them. So when someone says, well, what that means to me, immediately don't jump on their back and start beating them. That's wrong! But understand that they might not understand what meaning is. They might be using it. Say, do you mean that applies to you? Ask them that. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. They just probably haven't thought through it. And you can help them think that through. Um, Interpretation and application uh, always must be kept separate. Here's one way to do that. Let's assume you're studying Romans 12, 1 and 2. Rewrite in your own words those two verses. Start every sentence with the words Paul said. Make sure you write only what Paul actually said to the Romans in that verse. That is the interpretation. From that interpretation, you can develop appropriate applications... For your present situation. Here's a wrong approach and a good approach for Romans 12. 2. Do not be conformed to the world. Wrong approach. To me that means we shouldn't watch television. In fact this verse means all television is evil. If you want a television you're not a Christian. That's what Paul said to the Romans you know. You see how sloppy that is with means. Here's the right approach. A right approach. Paul said the Roman believers Paul said the Roman believers should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living that unbelievers do. Here's application. Something that influences me to think like an unbeliever is watching television. To keep from being conformed to worldly thinking, I should be more con- uh, more discerning about what I watch on television or even avoid watching television altogether. You see the difference between the two? Meaning is given its place, and now application is separate from that. Flowing from it, you can't get to application if you don't know what it means. You need to understand what it means, but then you move to application. Second, two clear, crisp, helpful steps in there, okay? Um, Interpretation, what Paul said, is distinct from how you are to act based on what he said. One interpretation or one meaning can lead to many legitimate applications because you might have not even thought at all about TV, watching TV, when he said, do not be conformed to this world. Okay, Just make sure you actually find the one meaning of the text before you start applying. Uh, number nine, grammar and syntax. Um, a verse does not say more or less than the rules of language make it say. It might be qualified by the context, but the real meaning of the text is found in what the passage says, according to the normal use of language, um, the whole. By the way, uh, I'll say this now, and then I'm going to give you um, Allie's email. What you're, what you have here is a, is a the first like eight pages or so of a book that's about 130 pages, and that whole book is available if you want it. Um, the whole rest of the book goes into grammar and syntax and even how to diagram and stuff. And I can't remember what the name of it is because I've got an old version of it and a new version, and I don't want to confuse the two. But if you want the PDF, the whole thing, you can email Allie and just say, would you please email to me the resource that Scott mentioned today? And she'll know what it is, even though I can't remember what its title is. Okay. Here's Allie's email, A-L-L-I-E, Allie at G-B-C-A-Z org. And just say, Scott told me to ask you for the resource today. And then she, she and I will make sure you get it, okay? Uh, but the whole rest of the, the book goes into grammar and syntax. Syntax means how you put it all together, how you put the words together, how they put the phrases and clauses together. You need to pay attention to that. Uh, Number 10. Historical appropriateness. I think we talked about this last time. One of the great dangers a Bible student faces is reading a modern view of a word or concept into a biblical one. For example, one well-known Christian psychologist defines one of Paul's words for the mind in Romans in terms of the Freudian unconscious mind. However, the unconscious mind, the id, the superego, and so on, are the manufacture of modern psychology. It is historically inappropriate to read those modern secular attempts back into Paul's statements. This is called totality transfer. That's an actual term that's used um, in the interpretation of Scripture, the totality transfer. Totally transferring a 21st century meaning into a 1st century word. The Freudian concept of a human of human beings simply didn't exist in Paul's day. Always make sure your interpretation is appropriate to the historical situation for the text. Uh, can I give you another example? You and I, growing up in the United States of America, um, and experiencing uh, and learning the the history of, of our nation is, in particularly, in regards to slavery. Um, we think of slavery, and we have it means something to us. Okay. When you read the New Testament and you see Paul talking to slaves and he's not in a hurry to free them, does that bother you? Um, It shouldn't because the first thing you should do is not assume that what slavery means to Paul is what it means to you and me slavery in first century rome there there was a lot of slavery like our nation had slavery there was a lot of it but not all of it people would actually sell themselves to a master because they could actually make a better living and live uh, a better quality of life under them and they were content to live that way and it wasn't a domineering destroy you you are not human view of slavery And so you have to be careful to not do the totality transfer. That everything slavery means today in my mind is what's found in that one word in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 3. You have to be careful to not do the totality transfer. Make sure that you understand the word. Um, Word study. Number 11, to understand a passage of scripture, key words within that passage must be defined accurately as illustrated above what we just talked about. To do this, it's helpful to consider the other uses of the word in scripture. First, and you do this by concentric circles outward. Let's say you come across a word that Paul uses and you're like, I don't know what that means. What should you do first? Look at Paul's other uses of that word in the same letter. Okay, So you stay with the same author in the same letter and you try to expand out a little bit. And then once you've exhausted those or if you didn't find any there where do you go next? Stay with the same author Paul but now go to another letter of Paul's. And look at how Paul uses it in other of his letters. Let's say you didn't find any there. What do you do next? Stay in the New Testament, and look for the uses of it there, and so forth. You keep expanding outward like that, word study that way. That will help you. Uh, If you're working in the New Testament, the Old Testament background of the word must be considered as well. Um, You can accomplish much in your word study with just an exhaustive English concordance and some persistence. As you look at every use of a word, you'll naturally see its range of meanings, its nuances in different contexts. However, today there are also many excellent um, usable lexicons, theological word books, and commentaries that provide scholarly applications of biblical words for even the average Bible student. Get them. Use them. Um, How many words can you think of today? You're not going to be able to probably... Do this right off the top of your head. But how many words do you know today that have one meaning and only one meaning? There's no range of meaning for them. Those kinds of words that have only one meaning and they never mean anything else are called technical terms. It only means one thing and one thing only. When you're reading the Bible, Um, There's not a real long list of technical terms where that one word, oh, justification. I know what that means. That's declared righteousness on the basis of faith alone. That's what that is. You're going to go to another passage and you're going to find the word justification used in a way that's going to make you really uncomfortable with your one idea that you applied to it. Um, You need to let... Uh, the word itself, if it has a range of meaning, come out and you've got to figure out that a word can be used in different ways. Um, Many are called, Jesus said, but few are chosen. Not all of the called are actually the chosen. Um, and so you have to make sure that you understand what that calling is compared to Romans eight, you were called. okay? The word calling doesn't mean the same thing in every passage. And you understand this because you use one word to mean many different things. Because words have a range of meaning. So, in your word study, you have to be careful. Um, Here's another good example in the Bible. The word flesh. The word flesh. Let me give you an example. Galatians 5. You know this, right? Galatians 5 verse 16 I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit is against the flesh these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please and then you will go back to John chapter 1 and it says and the word became oh no what on earth is that how can that be Well, if it's a technical term and it only means one thing all the time, no matter where it's used, we're in a whole heap of trouble, aren't we? But it doesn't. So you have to understand that there's a range of meanings. So that's why you have to be careful to not read John 1 and say, the word became flesh. Now let me help you understand what that means by going to Galatians 5. Oh my goodness, you are going to teach error in a big way, right? So try to define the word according to its context and not let another context overrun your context, right? Um... It's good for a student, number 12, checking principle, we're done. Here, this is it, guys, you made it. It's good for a student to check his understanding of a passage against the interpretations of Bible scholars from the ages of Christianity. It is impossible for us to know all of the geographical and historical and interpretation interpretational issues in a passage. Information Bible scholars spend a lifetime accumulating. Bible dictionaries, commentaries, and other Bible study tools can shorten that process, process from a lifetime to five minutes. Notice that this principle is... Where in the list? Last, Last not first. The first thing you do when you're trying to interpret a passage is not go to commentaries. Um, I used to do that all the time. Don't do that. There's so many things you guys can do before you get to that. There's a reason for putting it last. As a rule, it's best to do your own study on a passage and then compare it with someone else's. Sometimes you'll need to use Bible dictionaries and commentaries earlier in the process to get a handle on a certain word, a theological concept. That's okay. That's advisable. However, avoid the trap of opening a commentary and reading it as if it were the Bible. Work on a passage all that you can, looking up specific words or concepts you don't understand. Once you've done all that you can do in a process, to process a text, then use good commentaries to fill in the gaps and correct errors rather than read results of someone else's analysis and analyze the passage yourself. Um, I, when I study, um, right now, as I go through uh, Acts, I use four resources outside of um, the Bible and the Greek. Um, Four commentaries is what I I look at. Um, I'll tell you three of them because I you, one of the fourth one doesn't really matter. Um, I use um, a guy named Lenski, who is in about the early part of the 20th century, mid 1900s. Um, and I reuse him because he's very observant of the grammar in the text. It doesn't matter if it's in Acts or it's in an epistle of Paul's, he's paying attention to words and grammar and things like that. And I like watching somebody else who loves grammar, the grammar of God's word uh, pay attention to it and help me think about it. I then also use John Calvin who lived in the 1500s. And the reason I use him is I want to watch somebody who had a very high view of scripture but lived in a completely different era interact with the same passage. That's helpful because I am I'm a fish in my bowl and I'm wet. And I don't even know I'm wet with my cultural wetness. And it's helpful for me to watch a guy who's in his cultural wetness and he doesn't know he's wet with his water. And I like watching him look at a passage because at points it's like, oh, that's an interesting observation that he made from his vantage point as he's trying to rail on the Pope. I wasn't even thinking of the Pope when I saw this passage. There's helpful things in that. And then I use John MacArthur because it's not a technical commentary, but it's somebody who I trust in the way that he handles each passage. And it helps me. And so I choose not 10. Now, guess how many commentaries I started out with when I was using Acts? I picked the 10 best or so that I could find. And on my shelf, I'd have 10 commentaries or in my laptop, it would all be in my program that I use. And I would go through 10 commentaries at the end of everything else I did. And then what I noticed very quickly by about the end of chapter one or chapter two of Acts is that six of these guys are completely unhelpful. And guess where they went? Off my desk and onto my Luke part of the shelf. And then I was down to about four commentaries. And those are the ones that I use. Because those four guys end up saying it. If I read them first, they say, the other six guys, they haven't said anything new. And so I just stick with those. Um, And that's helpful. It's a way of checking what I have been doing for the first 11 rules. If I've done my grammar and I've diagrammed everything and I look at it and I'm trying to set up with the, trying to aspire or try to get the meaning of the original text, and then I come over here and four guys from four different eras tell me something different than what I came up with, I got to go back and check this again. Okay? Uh, L E N S K I. And actually, all those guys are in my libraries. I just dated myself, didn't I? Isn't that scary, Dave? In my logos. That's when I got it. I did. I upgraded. I still need to upgrade again. Um, let's see. Checking principle. It'll save your interpretational life, but don't become so commentary dependent that you never develop your own ability to interpret Scripture. Guys, if you, we'll, we'll, do, we'll help you here at Grace Bible Church. If you want to learn how to do more so you're less commentary dependent, we can, we can help you with that. It'll take a while, but we can help you with that. That's what H3 does a lot of. Um, so let me, let, me, let me finish there um, and, and talk a little bit about H3. Uh, the, the point of H3, head, heart, and hands. Uh, we're going to try to fill your head with biblical knowledge. Knowledge is not evil. A wrong use of knowledge will puff you up and make you arrogant. But knowledge is not evil. Knowledge of of, of scripture and experiential knowledge of living out the truth of God's word is not evil. You need to have, a, you need to grow in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second Peter three eighteen. We're going to give you that heart. Uh, in H uh, three, Smed is careful to never leave behind discipline one. That all of this is so that your heart continues to draw near to the God of the word. That you meet with him in a worshipful manner. And then hands. Hands means that you're going to put your hands to work studying the scriptures. Implementing these rules of interpretation. And uh, at the end of H 3, what they're all doing, what Scott prayed for earlier, is at the end of the year, all the guys are preaching a passage for 20 minutes. How many of you have done that here? You've preached a passage for 20 minutes. And look, how many guys that you know died in that process, and we had to bury them? You remember those guys? How many of you wanted to die in that process? I won't ask that. Um, so it all, you get to, to grow more in your theological understanding, you get to continue to be challenged at a heart level, and you get to actually put these things to, into practice. Um, however, the kind of man that you are who does that is everything if you're the wrong kind of man where you are not shepherding your heart to the Word of God and you want to know more theology and you want to be able to teach God's Word and tell people what to do but you're the wrong kind of guy, we won't help you with that. Do you understand? You have to be the right kind of man. That's why we take a whole year of build and say you've got to be the right kind of man first. And then, if you want to grow in your theology and you want to grow in your understanding of how to break apart a text and put it back together for a sermon, oh man, we'd love to teach you that. So you can better feed your family, so you can better feed your small group, so that you can maybe be a pastor-teacher someday or something. But first, you've got to be disciplined with your own heart. You've got to be disciplined in your home life. You've got to be disciplined in your ministry with the gospel. You need to be disciplined to aim for qualification of life. And you need to be disciplined or self-controlled in your interpretation of God's word. You see how it's a spiritual discipline? Hermeneutics is a spiritual discipline. I've never heard it taught that way. It has to be though, guys. You have to be self-controlled in how you interpret the word of God. So we are done now with that. Any thoughts or any questions that you want to ask as we finish up here? Mick.
2: What would you say to someone who is, because of uh, studying or learning to study their Bible in this way, going through these, these steps, mm-hmm. is hesitant or fearful about sharing what they're learning mm-hmm. until they think that they've come to a, a phase where they know exactly what it means yeah. Um, and they're fearful because they don't want to tell someone, something that they, they think is wrong or underdeveloped.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, so one of the things I would want to say to that person is, I appreciate that concern. That's that's a good thing, but it might be overstretched. Um, It's God's word. These are the best words ever, the highest words, the words of the most authority. And we should make sure that we're always representing them the best that we can and not misrepresenting them. So I'd want to affirm that desire. But I would want to say also then at a normal everyday level, um, I'm pretty sure you're able to take a lot of what other people say and then go and represent the, the gist of what they were saying accurately without diagramming their words. There's something about, this is why we are content to not teach hermeneutics until the, actually the end of the year of build. Because we actually believe that by reading it and you already knowing intuitively how language works, you, you get a lot from here. Um, so I would say don't be afraid to say what, it, what you think it means. And you can say that. As far as I can tell at this point, I believe what that passage means is this. You can say that, and that's okay. Who on earth has the complete, perfect understanding of any passage? Do you know what I tell people all the time? Um, the, the, the interpretation of a passage that, of mine that I trust the most is the passage that I've preached. I have ideas about other things in Scripture. Um, I have an opinion about every passage. But I haven't preached every passage. But the level of work that I go through to preach a passage, I trust that interpretation more than I entrust any other interpretation that I have of any other passage. And even I was sitting yesterday with uh, three women in our church as we're uh, putting together our study in Philippians, and I grew yesterday in the observation that two of the ladies made in a passage that I already preached. And I had to make an adjustment in my understanding of that passage. It was awesome, because that's what I want. I want to understand God's Word. I don't want to think that I've arrived. No, this is the meaning. It's the only meaning, and you can't question, don't touch my understanding of Philippians 1, 9 to 11. Mm-hmm. You know, no. I want, I want anybody to look at it as we're looking at God's word. So, does that make sense? Yeah. What do you think? What, what would you add, or what would you... No, I
2: think the word that would be that we, we wouldn't
1: say anything if we you know, had Right. We wouldn't be able to do evangelism. You and I wouldn't be saved if, if the person who had to share with us had to have the complete and total understanding. Where would we be? God assumes and has it built out that even people who don't understand his word totally are able to share the truth and his word is powerful. Yeah, that's good. and
3: I understand uh, in the proper context that God's glorification uh, is a chief concern in terms of humanity, His Word, um, before I go
2: to God's Word. Hmm. Um, it's been helpful in not going to the Word and having all this brokenness just
3: kind of relieve itself of the, the, hmm. the disciplines that you're talking
1: about. Um, and to not be so self absorbed. Yeah.
3: It's so easy for uh, self absorption to just create yeah. anything in any
1: kind of way. Yeah. So just like outside worry is sort of some formal sound. Yeah. That's good. That's um, do you know what is more uh I'll use a, a psychological term. Do you know what's more therapeutic for you than anything? To actually not think of yourself as much. Because love is selfless. Love is self-denying. It turns away from self and it gives attention to others. And when one of the best things that can happen when you are like just completely overwhelmed by either your own sin or all the entanglements of your own life and you come as this tied up, tight ball of just self and selfishness and self-focus, the best thing you can do is open your Bible and forget about you for a while. Or set your mind on God and see that man, I am just, I've been too overwhelmed by myself. The best thing you can do is put your eyes on God. Let him retell to you again what he made you to be in Christ. Not everything may come untangled, but the best thing that will be for you that will bring most encouragement is just to, to gaze upon him, see him in scripture, grow in your love for him. I may be a mess, but God, you are amazing. You are awesome. So that's a huge part, just to look for the glory of God in a text. Um, what would you guys, in all honesty, what would you like to see be different in build? You've been through a year. What would, what would have been helpful for you? Um, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want this ministry, the elders want this ministry to be the best that it can be. Would there be anything that you would suggest that would be more helpful or make it more effective? Um, in, it, in its practical outworkings or what we're trying to do or we can do something better. I, I hope you'll feel free to fill out your um, evaluation and share that. And if you want to erase your name off the top or scratch it out, you can. I don't, I don't care. I want you to just feel free to communicate. Mick, what do you think? Uh,
2: I've always thought going through Bill I've always been really encouraged. But every time I go through it, I realize that I totally forgot well, not, not totally forgot, but I, after Bill we was finished, the stuff that we have learned mm. more or less escaped my mind until I go through it again. Mm. Um, and I guess until going into a this time, I really haven't uh, thought of it as much as a need, but I think maybe just more of an encouragement to develop kind of a one-on-one Mm. discipleship with someone else in Build that can into
1: non-Build yep. of the year? I, I, I appreciate that. That's, that's a great suggestion. One of the I think there's a natural way for that to occur and um, maybe a one way to skin that cat would be to, in your small group, find another guy uh, who maybe has been through Build and say, can we meet once a month just to do a, a, a discipline checkup? And let's really talk, you know, openly and honestly about that. That way you can bring it into your small group as somebody who's in your life. That would be one way to do it. Um, if, if anybody needed help outside of that for another way, we, we should we should explore that. I think that's a great suggestion. Any other ideas, guys, about what we could do? M, what do you think?
3: Um, I, really like the, uh, I really like the caring of the small group.
1: That's good. Uh, you know, the, the challenge with um, being in a discussion group here um, is that you're only going to meet every other week. And it's only going to be for nine months out of the year. And it's going to be with people that you may not have ever met anywhere in the body before, which is a good thing. But the build discussion group is not meant to be like what a small group is supposed to be at church. And so uh, what we're doing in our discussion groups is to try to give you an opportunity to just see that, oh, I'm not the only knucklehead trying to do this. There's other guys who are trying to figure this out with me. Oh, that's great to see that we're all in this together. But that's going to end. Uh, So you really, you know, we want to make sure that there's a discussion group emphasis, but you need to really be in a small group in the church to really help that. And we probably need to do a better job of reinforcing build type of things in small group more. It, It probably comes out in some natural ways, but it'd be good for us to, Talk with our small group leaders about reinforcing that a little bit more. Yeah. So I've, I've made a note of, on that as well. That's good. I think it would be helpful to
3: just, you know, I know we talked about my we got the mechanics in there with our uh, uh, you know, email addresses for everybody in the group. But it would be nice, you know, even at the end of the year uh, or during the year, um, to have those pieces of communication. And remember, oh, yeah, look at my list and see who was in Bill. Mm.
1: that's good yeah and, and you guys know this i mean you can like next year um well, well first off how many of you have taken this is your second time in build at least your second time at least your second time for how many of you how is this at least your third time so you've got guys in here who have done this more than once. They've done it more than twice. They've done it more than three times. They've done it a bunch of times. You're welcome to come back and do it again. Uh, if you got, went through this year and you're like, I think I'm. I think it's starting to click now. But I'd like another year. You can do that. Um, if you've done build well um, in your attendance and in your homework. Um, and it looks like you're really beginning to, you know, you're doing the best you can to apply these things. We're going to ask you to not be in build this year and instead go to H3 next year. Uh, if that's what you want and it works and it can work out with your schedule, we want you to, to go there and do that. Um, but if, if you don't want to go to H3, if you've done build well, you can come back and you can take this again. And also if you want to, you can just drop in anytime you want. You can like show up to one of the builds next year and, um, if you want to email me and say, hey, put me on the list of so that I know, at least know what the schedule is for next year, I'll let you know what that is, and you can come anytime you want. You can see what the, what's being offered and go, you know, in October, it'd probably be good for me to hear another one on the heart again. Come to that one. Uh, feel free to do that if you want, okay? To keep reinforcing these things. I'll tell you that I think this year uh, there's been something special about the way that this year has gone that is is different than other years. Um, Number one, I I think, uh, you know, there's been a a retention rate this year that's better than other years. And I think that um, I've just been super encouraged by how faithful you guys have been, how hard you've worked in your um, at your homework. What I've learned from other small group leaders and discussion group leaders here is they're just encouraged as well. So, you know, thank you for being diligent and for thinking on these things and applying them to your life. Anything else you'd want to share about the year um, or a a way to improve it or anything from your um, evaluation sheet that you'd want to point out that you think it should start earlier than 645 or something like that to make it better? (laughs) M, Please, love it.
3: Maybe it wasn't how I'm wired, but I always remember throughout my week what I talked about when I met with our little birds. I always had that fresh on my mind. Um, and so uh, I it, it helped kind of just jump back it, you know, it's, it was harder for me to re go through the lesson and mm. Hmm.
1: Balanced
3: that, so the resources were
1: super helpful. Okay. That's that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else, guys?
2: Mick? Um, I was just going to say I really liked the lesson on decision making. I thought that was really useful. Yeah.
1: Yeah, That was helpful for me. Well, uh, that'll become a regular feature, I'm sure. Anything else, guys? All right. The cards uh, that have the um, the transformation of man. There's not very many of them left right now, and we're going to reprint them for the fall. Uh, make a, a, there's some typos in them and some things to make consistent, uh, more consistent, but. Um, if you need and want more of those, just let me know and we can get them for you. We'll, we'll order more than we did this last year, so that there's more laying around because <laughs> we ran out of them at some point. I
3: was having a conversation with someone from out of town and I was talking to him about it and I was like, hey, "Just take it." You know? so yeah. Then
1: you're like, "I don't have one. I've got one at the church. If you at the office, if you want one, and get you that for sure." Uh, oh, you can do that too. Yeah. I think I even have it in PDF that you can have. On PDF on the- Is it on the website on that page? Maybe go to that page and and see if or that uh, that that meeting that lesson, and you might be able to get it electronically as well. All right, guys, let's let's pray. And if you guys want to stay around and talk some more, you can. And you can just um, maybe on one of the ends of the tables over here, you can leave your yellow evaluation sheet. That would be helpful. But let's pray, and I want to give thanks to God for you guys. Okay. Father in heaven, I do give you thanks for these men and the the great encouragement that they have been to um, me and to the other elders involved. Lord, I know. Um, Lord, you have uh, been working in their lives. And um, now what we pray, Lord, for each one of us, myself included, is that we would take steps from this um, ministry, from this program that ran a course of nine months. And that we would step into the rest of our lives with these spiritual disciplines in mind. And that, Lord, we would, we would live differently. We would live better for you. We would live a life that's pleasing to you. Lord, we want to do that not because um, we think that we have to earn your favor. We know that Jesus has accomplished that for us. But from a, a perfect position in Christ, you call us to excel still more in a life that's pleasing to you. I pray, God, that um, through these, this self-control and this self-discipline and these spiritual disciplines, Lord, we would live a life that is pleasing to you, that we would excel in it. Lord, help these men um, as they take their first steps back into their homes today and as Build comes to a close and, and assure them of your presence, assure them of your equipping in their lives, assure them of your grace in their lives, assure them of your the presence of your Holy Spirit within them. Assure them of the power of your word, that they have everything they need pertaining to life and godliness, to live a life that's pleasing to you, Lord. May they live in that confidence, me too. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. You are dismissed. Appreciate you being here.